собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. I had a pretty busy summer. Though COVID destroyed some of my plans, some of my other plans just got moved online. So way back in June, which seems like forever now, I taught an online course on podcasting for the Monterey Summer Symposium on Russia. For one week, I gave the symposium's fellows a crash course in audio work, and then they took that knowledge and made some short audio pieces. So I decided to run a few of them on the podcast. So here's the first two. The other two will follow in a few days. So first up, we have The Great Russian Trash Crisis by Seth Farkas. Seth Farkas is an MA candidate in Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies at Georgetown University's Walsh School for Foreign Service. His research interests include political discourse and communication, nationalism, and language politics in Russia, Central Asia, and Eastern Europe. He's currently researching Russian interests and activities in Latin America, the recent Russian trash crisis, and the future of agriculture in Russia in light of climate change. So here's Seth's piece, The Great Russian Trash Crisis. It's March of 2018. And we're in Volokolomsk, not too far outside of Moscow. We're listening to one of the many protests that overtook Russia in the late 2010s. Some of these protests had over 25,000 people. At many of them, protesters hold signs warning of the beginning of the end, an enemy of the people, and even a genocide. The cause of these protests is trash. My name is Seth Barkas, and we're going to be talking about trash. Russia has had a major problem with municipal solid waste. Essentially, there's too much of it, and the infrastructure can't keep up, especially in and around Moscow. What happens is the trash gets taken to landfills in such large quantities, and it's not treated, that it just piles up, and it smells bad, and it looks bad. Residents are understandably not happy. The thing is, it's framed as a health problem, which makes sense because, I mean, the fumes from trash can't be good. But at the same time, many of these regions have problems with industrial pollution, which 
according to scientists and other health experts, is a much greater threat to these people's health. So there has to be another piece of the puzzle, and that's what I'm looking at here. Essentially, why trash? And why now? If this problem isn't just a health problem, what kind of problem is it? Is it political? Is it about the environment? I spoke with Bella Nikitina, a Russian sociologist and activist in Samara. She's one of the few people who's formally researched the trash crisis, and she had a lot to say. It turns out the problem isn't that simple. She told me that a big part of the problem is that people are disconnected from the trash that they're protesting. We will say, don't throw away the piece of paper. Please put it in a trash bin and you will be fine. Uh, the problem is you should care about where it will go from this bin, what will happen next, who will serve this system of bins, what will be economical consequences. In other words, the trash that you throw out is just a small part in a longer sequence of events going from the production of goods to the consumption to throwing out the trash and then what happens to that trash. A lot of people don't think about this entire sequence of events when they're just throwing out a wrapper, for example. So I think that this is a problem of underdeveloped stage of the whole society and the, the whole social system. The garbage became garbage in one minute, even one several seconds, or maybe several days after something was bought. So people don't even particularly think about where, what, why they take. So people need to be more conscious of what they're consuming and the waste that they're producing. But easier said than done. Can we do it? No, we can't until something happens on the high level. We need political will. There seems to be a certain disconnect between the trash that individuals produce and the trash that they see piling up. So culpability, or lack thereof, is part of it. But there's also the very simple element of visibility. Population can react on the problems which is visible. For example, in Russia, people have no very you know, serious reaction of climate change. But what we can see, which is near, and the famous not-in-my-backyard ideology, of course, united all kinds of people. Citizens, of course, don't like to have such beauty near their uh, residential area. And it's really, as you know, backyard. Because where is landfill mostly situated? They're mostly situated in the poor outskirts of Moscow, of other cities. And of course, these people who are living there have weakest power in political sense. So trash piles up, and a not-in-my-backyard mindset guides a lot of the thinking. This isn't that surprising, and not-in-my-backyard is definitely not unique to Russia. We haven't yet answered how and why the problem came about in the first place. 
There's an explanation, and it traces back to the Soviet Union. When I was a young girl, I used to use the real track, which came and we threw away some garbage there, and it was very few garbage. There was no candies wraps. We, we collected, we, we show each other, we exchange them. Can you imagine now such kind of situation? And of course, all kind of things which now everywhere was in deficit. So we uh, was very hungry and 90, 90s, the whole period uh, was also period of, of deficit, but not because of there was no Chinese stuff, but people have no, not so much money. And then era of high oil prices started and we have a lot of uh, money, which allow them what? You know, it was too much to buy, but it was not too much to refuse. So people began producing more trash. But at the same time, Moscow was expanding. This territory, which is growing, came very close to the places where landfills was situated. Nobody, of course, take it in consideration. Moscow was small, became big, and the volume of these huge hills of garbage became bigger and bigger. And like in a fairy tale, once upon a time, our you know, wisest in the world leader, Putin said that, ah, we need to close uh, one of these very dangerous and old landfill, Balashikha, because there was residents who complained and said, look, it's really next to our buildings. And Putin said, immediately close it. But you know the effect of domino, when something started to fall and everybody will fall, fall, fall. Then you have a problem. You close some landfills, but you still have the trash. So what do you do with it? Imagine when somebody closes your toilet in your apartment. What you will do? You can't stop. You can't say, okay, I will not use it two weeks and then I will start. So Moscow have this unstoppable flow of garbage. And where to put it? Federal and regional governments have responded to many of the protests by closing landfills or stopping their construction. But, as Nikitina pointed out, the flow of trash hasn't stopped. She told me that the decreasing flow of trash would require major changes in how goods are produced and consumed in the country, and how the waste treatment system works. For example, recycling is essentially non-existent, and there's no reason to expect that to change anytime soon. The federal government, however, has made changes to waste collection, including the creation of the Russian Ecological Operator, a company to carry out the quote-unquote effective and lawful management of waste in Russia. You can reduce the scale of this landfill if you will have system of selection, waste selection. And here we have another situation. It's like a greediness from one side, why you want to have more and more garbage, but not this recyclable? First of all, first your idea will be, ah, these people want to have these recyclables to have a profit from recyclables, but not. It's not a big part. The biggest part, unfortunately, in, in Russia, to have a payment for this huge amount of garbage. And the Russian ecological operators specifically? Mamma mia. 
it's absolutely absolutely you know unnecessary chain between uh, regional operators so-called regional operators and some uh, national bodies so essentially the changes look pretty significant but they're really not going to do too much to resolve the trash crisis as for a prognosis nikitina isn't too optimistic who will discuss about this we have no enough experts why because we have very depressed public sphere, and it made especially. So maybe you understand that I am very politically um, concerned about situation here. And of course, as most progressive part of Russians, we are a little bit depressed after all situation here. And of course, I I must say you, if we will have Putin more, we will have garbage problem more and more and more till the total crisis. Without changing this mad political machine. We will not do anything. So I don't know what to do. As for me, I'm very pessimistic. So we shouldn't even think about how to transform this system while we are in such political situation. It looks like trash is here to stay. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank Bella Nikitina of Samara State University of Economics for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you also to the Monterey Summer Symposium on Russia in general, and Sean Guillory in particular, for making this possible. The music is courtesy of filmmusic.io. That was The Great Russian Trash Crisis by Seth Farkas. Next up is An Empty Pedestal, Ukraine After Lenopad by Sabrina Beaver. Sabrina Beaver is an incoming research analyst for Franklin Templeton's global macroeconomics team. She received her BA in international relations with a minor in Russian from Wesley College. Most recently, Sabrina interned with the U.S. Department of State in Kazakhstan with the support of the Albright Institute for Global Affairs, where she researched and developed reporting on foreign investment, economic diversification, and regional dynamics. Here's Sabrina's piece, An Empty Pedestal, Ukraine After Leninopad. Uh, maybe one kilometer away from the square. I ran like crazy. There was a huge crowd of protesters and they were hitting it with massive uh, hammer. That was Niels Ackerman, a Swiss photojournalist, describing the toppling of the Bessarabska Square Lenin statue in December of 2013. Ackerman was waiting for his food in a pizzeria in Kiev when he saw live footage of the crowds on TV and realized what was happening. He, as you just heard, took off for the square immediately. Niels Ackerman and Sebastian Gobert, a French journalist who we'll hear from in just a minute, are the co-creators of the book Looking for Lenin, which documents the fate of Ukraine's Lenin statues following Leninopad, or Leninfall. At the time of independence in 1991, Ukraine had over 5,000 Lenin statues, the greatest density of Lenins anywhere in the world. 
And while decommunization has occurred in fits and starts since independence, Euromaidan and the decommunization laws of 2015 greatly accelerated this process. Ackerman and Gobert Search took them across Ukraine to photograph the final resting places of these fallen Lenins and to collect testimony from Ukrainians they met along the way. The next morning, I was taking a taxi and uh, I saw no traces of the, the Lenin except the, the pedestal. And a few months later, it came back to my mind. I thought like it was impossible to destroy everything like that. So what happened to the rest of this Lenin statue? And I remember that the shock was big and that they were hitting hard, but they were only chopping tiny pieces. So there was probably like a big shapeless stuff somewhere, probably like in a rusty warehouse. And imagining this, like Lenin, this very luxurious statue being stored in a rusty warehouse, it felt like there was something interesting to do. And, and that's when we decided to start looking for this Lenin. And by looking for this Lenin, which was actually super complex to find. We found many other, and that's how the, the project started. The realization of this project took Gobert and Ackerman across Ukraine. From Slovyansk to Usherod, and from Odessa to Chernobyl, Ackerman and Gobert met Ukrainians from all walks of life. And what they discovered was that Ukrainians' view on Russia, Europe, and communism, which are often portrayed as being part of a clean-cut East-West divide, were in fact quite a bit more complex. The removal of Soviet statues and symbols was about more than geography. It was about identity, and thus was entangled with demographic trends and individual histories. As Sebastian explains, while living with the extraordinary circumstances of Euromaidan, the annexation of Crimea, and the war in the East, Ukrainians' understanding of Leninopad and decommunization is diverse. What we identified in the course of our research and in the course of our interviews is not exactly a geographical cleavage. It was much more complex than that. Uh, it was going along the lines of uh, generations. It was going along the lines of um, social economic um, categories. It was also very much connected to uh, political ideology. So we met people who very much supported uh, Lenin open and decommunization um, in the east of the country. We met people who were very opposed to this policy in, in, in the west of the country. What we saw and what we documented in, uh, in, in our project was that uh, in the absence of a coordinated answer to uh, Leninopad and to decommunization, and in the absence of answers, Ukrainians uh, came up with their own answers and, uh, and, and, and understood and made sense of, of Leninopad their own way meeting all these people and sharing their own experience, their own uh, relationship to this, uh, to this past showed so much of this diversity. And when you read the, the, these texts in the, in the book, if you approach them with an open mind, every single one makes sense. They are correct in what they say, but they all contradict each other. You will have a person very opposed to conservation of traces of the Soviet past next to someone who is reminding how uh, some great years of his or her life uh, happened at this moment uh, and how this statue was kind of like a, a, a focal point of these, uh, these moments. And even within one small town, you will have this, uh, this contrast. When you go down to the micro level, really, like if you, you take a group of five people, you will have two for, two against, and one who doesn't know. And although the testimonies that Sebastian and Niels collected varied, 
The project is striking in that it comprises around 100 photographs of just one man, Vladimir Illich Lenin. And yet, every photo is different because of its statue's destiny. Some are standing up, others lay face down on the ground. Some are stored in museums, while others sit in warehouses or in gardens as nature slowly reclaims them. And though Ukraine's Lenin statues have fallen, any kind of unified understanding of Ukrainian identity or of Ukraine's past, present, and future seems less absolute. I think one of my, my favorites is um, located in Horbani, a small village uh, a bit on the east of Kiev. There, they just repainted and fixed their, their statue, which was a pretty special one. You had a sitting Lenin discussing with two young pioneers. And uh, they, the villagers, they were proud of their statue. Because of the law, they had to take it out. At this moment, someone suggested to the mayor, yeah, you know, maybe we could hide it somewhere in the forest. So they took the statue, they put it somewhere in the forest. And then the local youngsters, they made a bench or two benches even and uh, a table. And it became kind of the, the hotspot for uh, parties and uh, hangouts. He took us there. He showed us this Lenin. And, and when he was showing it, he said like, yeah, you know, Maybe it's good to, to keep it because at the, the pace things change in Ukraine, maybe at some point we will need uh, Lenin back. That was An Empty Pedestal, Ukraine After Leninopad by Sabrina Beaver. I hope you enjoyed these two wonderful audio pieces. I'm very proud of how they came out. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. You can help support this podcast by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, I want to thank all my patrons for their continued support. And you can find past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.